everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Joe, and today we are thrilled to have Professor Judith Grizel here with us today. Uh, Before becoming a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Bucknell University, Judith Grizel began using recreational drugs when she was 13 and ended up in a treatment center at 23. Her research career focused on studying the neuroscience of substance use disorders and eventually wrote a, a recent New York Times bestseller, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, an internationally recognized behavioral neuroscience with ex- neuroscientist with expertise in pharmacology and genetics. Professor Grizel is also a distinguished mentor by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute for her collaboration in this research with undergraduate students and has been a recipient of numerous grants from the National Institute of Health. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Judy. I'm glad to be here. So normally we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. You think you could share a moment with us? Oh, well, I think most of my life has been an inflection point. <laughs> um, so I, I tend to uh, do a lot of pivoting. I think um, certainly um, when I learned that I was uh, dying from my drug use and that if I wanted to live, I would have to be abstinent, that was a big pivot. And that's what propelled me to study the brain. Um, but I've, I was... Um, Let's see, single until I was 38. I got married and I, I got two stepsons and pregnant. That was another big pivot all at once. <laughs> wow. um, I l- gave up tenure at one university oh. after 15 years, and I had a happy career there, and I thought, well, I'll try something new. So I'm, I'm somebody who kind of likes to tip over the boat frequently. Mm-hmm. And if you could sort of, I guess, point to one of those experiences as possibly the most definitive in your life, and sort of explain some reasons why, I guess. Yeah, certainly um, my, my coming to uh, realize that I had a brain disorder and that I was killing myself with my drug use was probably the biggest, um, certainly the biggest, um, I guess, transformation in my life. And I, I really didn't know that I would be able to transform so well, but I think um, curiosity and perseverance, um, yeah, so really the whole trajectory of my life changed twice. Once when I first tried drugs at 13, and once uh, when I stopped. So on that, just building off of that point, um, I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit, and I know you've been interviewed a lot about this experience um, through other newspapers, podcasts, and I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit of how it was like for you to um, transition out of that drug use, mm-hmm. and because I can't imagine it must be easy, and you, you mentioned a lot of support from your family, especially your dad, sitting you down and mm-hmm. having that talk to you about um, changing your lifestyle and so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little more about that journey mm-hmm. coming out and picking yourself back up or however you'd like to call it yeah um, actually my father didn't he didn't give me much of a talk he okay. he had uh, decided a few years earlier when I was maybe 16 or 17 that um, he didn't have a daughter because it was so painful, I think, for him to see me. And um, 
Then, kind of inexplicably, he took me to dinner, and he didn't say, he didn't give me much of a talk. I was kind of prepared for the talk and pretty full of defenses. Um, but he said, you know, I just really want you to be happy. So um, that I wasn't really prepared for. And, of course, by that point, I was miserable. I had been doing exactly what I wanted to do for, you know, most of 10 years, and I was totally miserable. So um, I think... Uh, yeah, that was kind of a big moment of truth. Um, and so I guess somewhat on the same topic, but moving forward a little bit to get more at your book, uh, there's the quote, addiction makes enough impossible, I guess. So I, I wanted to sort of get at what your goal in writing this book is, what you hope the biggest lesson sort of your audience takes away from it and sort of get at both of those two points. Sure. Um, I, my goal was kind of um, rose out of futility a little bit because I actually thought it wouldn't be so complicated to mm -hmm. solve this problem. I figured scientists are doing great things and surely we're putting a lot of money and effort toward it. I was working hard and thousands of other people. Um, but when, you know, after, I guess, 25 years of research, you know, close up, I, I realized we weren't solving it. I think I decided, well, at least I can explain what we know. So that's what I wrote. And I, what I want people to get out of it is the understanding that the brain adapts to any drug that you take regularly by producing the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. The brain wants to maintain a kind of stasis or homeostasis. Mm -hmm. It wants to be neutral. And so if we inflate our feeling states or make ourselves more relaxed or more euphoric or um, more energetic, whatever, the brain produces the exact opposite effect. So you really can't get high um, if you use regularly and, you know, repeatedly. So on that same point about researching and explaining to, I guess, the public about your research, I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little to the challenges or the benefits in translating research and academia into practice. We've had a lot of um, researchers and professors mm -hmm. around campus as well talking about the challenges of translating the science to society in a way and especially for clinical treatments and just from someone who has experienced the exact things that you are researching what do you think is is there a gap and if so I, I mean I'm, I guess mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a gap and <laughs> how how do we bridge that mm-hmm it's, it's really been um, kind of a double dose of humility because I get humble in the lab because I don't understand many things, and that's why I'm researching them, but, you know, progress is very slow. And then um, it's been wonderful for me to be um, inter interfacing with people who are really still suffering. It's easy for me to forget about my own suffering because it's been a long time, but to see people, many, many people who've lost their children mm. or um, their freedom um, and, and, are, and are asking valid, clear questions that we're still really not able to answer. So I think, um, I certainly think there's always a need for communication and I'm a real proponent of having as many kinds of voices at the table as possible. And I don't think there are many opportunities for scientists to really sit face to face with, you know, people from the community or detox center or um, social workers. I've met a lot of 
social workers and I have uh, just an amazing um, admiration for them because mm -hmm. they're in the trenches every day, mm -hmm. you know, facing this stuff. And it's a lot easier to have a failed experiment than I <laughs> think, you know, deal with patients yeah. who are intractable. And so sort of in that same vein, um, when you started working, did you feel as though most people in the field of neuroscience sort of lacked the same perspective as you? And if so, sort of how did this manifest insofar as research or projects? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was really fortunate. I have had terrific mentors. My first one, I took seven years to get my undergraduate degree, which is terrible. But um, And I, I finally did find myself in a lab with a wonderful uh, mentor who was doing probably the most boring experiments. Hopefully he doesn't <laughs> hear me. But, um, but I really loved that. And I think that what we shared, and even though my, my desire was to solve addiction, I mean, I think that's what his desire was too, but we really did share a love of empirical research and a, and a sort of a curiosity, a, a, a desire to to do one more experiment, to ask this next question. And so that's really sustaining. That kind, you know, science is constantly unfolding, and so it's infinitely interesting and entertaining. So mm -hmm. that part, I, I never noticed a, a gap or a dilemma. I think, um, I think they might have wondered, you know, most people who study addiction are not addicts, and they, mm -hmm. and they drink and do other things probably. So I think I may have been a little bit of an outlier. And I, I hope that the book would be a bridge mostly for lay people to understand the science, but also, I think secondarily, for scientists to appreciate what it feels like. Mm -hmm. So just talking a little more about your book, um, it's in a way it was it's part autobiography, part academic. And so I was wondering how or why did you decide to take this kind of route in writing the book, especially incorporating your experiences. Like you could have just re written a research paper, mm -hmm. a purely research paper. Mm -hmm. and But having this like human aspect to it, especially drawing from your own experiences, what do you think was the, what was going through your mind when you decided to do this? Because mm -hmm. it's a very vulnerable experience. Like you're putting your life story out there for millions to read. Yeah, I don't know about millions, <laughs> but, okay, but, but hopefully some people. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I The original idea was to illustrate the scientific principles with my experience and the experience of others. And that was really um, an academic prospect, mm -hmm. as you intuited. I think I when I started writing, it was really lovely and easy to write all about the science. Mm -hmm. And I went on and on. You know, chapters that turned out to be one chapter now were three or four to begin with, just going on and on about mm -hmm. the brain and this and that. And um, then when I had to write, because the the um, editor, my editor said, well, people don't want all these vegetables, you know. And the, <laughs> and the original <laughs> idea, I understand that. And even, even some scientific colleagues said, no, you really need to add some stuff. That was tough. Um, that was really tough. It's creative writing to some degree because, you know, I wasn't having to cite everything, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I was really having to dig deep. I had a sabbatical for part of it and um, the beginning chapters, which were tough. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I got, you know, my three cups of coffee and some stayed in my pajamas and <laughs> sat on the couch, did a little contemplation and then did some writing but it was brutal actually <laughs> and you know when you're writing scientific papers you need a couple good graphs and they yeah. write themselves but that wasn't the case with the uh, personal parts 
<laughs> so I hope it's helpful. Um, and so this is a little bit more topical of a question, but um, so I know for kids these days, like Sabrina and I, there are probably two big addictions. Um, both kids are very addicted to their screens, and there's a lot of screen time, and that obviously has some ramifications on our brain. And on top of that, there's obviously uh, the plague of uh, drooling, like teen vaping mm -hmm. is very prevalent. So I sort of wanted to get your take on both of those sort of prevalent addictions, mm -hmm. and I guess which you think may be worse, or mm -hmm. uh, obviously apples to oranges, but yeah, if you could speak about yeah. both of those for a little bit and sort of where you stand on them. Yeah, they're both certainly addictive, very addictive. I would say the jeweling is probably worse because it's more potent. Mm. So there's probably not as many really potent uh, updates and you know <laughs> things like yeah. that so you can really control it with jeweling but both of them are addictive and so both of them as you say are changing the structure and the function of our brains and um, altering the way we experience the world so it's not trivial some of that alteration may be good but I will point out and they probably know this from other speakers but the, um, the people in Silicon Valley are very much staying away from the stuff. They don't want their kids anywhere near them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we, we don't really, we're doing a big experiment about this. Maybe, um, probably my prediction would be affecting our attention spans and our ability to focus, for one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the vaping is, um, you know, uh, really sad because... Nicotine is one of the most addictive drugs, and I think the bad reputation it got because it was being carried with tar was finally having an impact in decreasing the use, you know, decreasing smoking. And just in the nick of time, the industry came up with a clever alternative that I think is really going to be a problem. So just going back a little bit to um, on the point of addiction and especially teenagers, falling into this rabbit hole of being addicted to something. Um, I was wondering, at least from your perspective, why is it that we're so, we as in humans, especially teens, I guess, are so susceptible to having these drugs in one way or form? Like I think in a way, like Joe mentioned, the screen time, all these gadgets are addictive in a way that, in a different way that drugs are, but still this sense of like addictive activities. Like what yeah. is it about humans, I guess. Also very intuitive, Sabrina. So that's a great question. So since humans have been humans and probably before, we have been prone to trying substances to change the way we think and feel and behave. And so this is totally a natural drive. And it's most um, strong, that drive is most strong during this period from puberty to about 25, <laughs> for darn good reason. Because what we're really talking about is exploring new things, taking risks. And if you were a 17-year-old in our long evolutionary history and unwilling to do either of those things, mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't be good for the survival of your species <laughs> or for your own survival and progeny. So I think it's really natural that um, these, these uh, tendencies are there. The problem, of course, is that if you don't have healthy, non-destructive ways of exploring and taking risks and trying out new things. But instead, you have all these high-potent potent compounds around and, you know, a phone in your pocket. You can sort of waste your life on the couch. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I guess I think we only have time for one last question. Um, and this is a question I always love to ask people generally and all the interesting speakers who come. And so if you could turn back time and tell your college self one piece of advice, what would it be? And it can be a long, it can be long, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be so brief, but. Mm -hmm. So my college, it depends. If, if it was the pre-college, you know, I, I really spent six years not being a good student. Um, I think I would have said to myself, uh, you're, you, you are okay. You don't have to medicate so much of your pain away. I think I would say that. I think I was in a lot of pain and I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. um, my later self, I would just encourage uh, to persist despite the frustrations and the difficulty of, of changing. <laughs> so that is all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Judy, Judy for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>